Welcome to the UK Consult Weekly Podcast with Jonathan Bradley and Elton Daddo, engagement practitioners and general consultation superheroes at Bang the Table in the UK. Hello and welcome to the UK Consult, our occasional ramble through all things community engagement and public consultation. Today we have our special guest, Kevin Rye from Think Fan Engagement. Welcome, Kevin. Hi, Jono. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah. (laughs) I'm really excited about having you come on today. Yeah. um, With with everything that's been going on around (laughs) the world of fan engagement. If you can give us a quick introduction, that'd be lovely. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was an activist Wimbledon fan. Activism always scares people in football. (laughs) Not all of them, not all of them. Not all of them. That's not fair. There's a lot of people who who would recognise it. But as an activist trying to save uh, Wimbledon Football Club, unfortunately we didn't succeed. But everyone knows the story of AFC Wimbledon, which I got involved in as well. And then eventually, a couple of years later, got asked to come work for Supporters Direct for a short time. That short time lasted for 11 and a half years, wherein I did, it was public relations and communications, working with supporters' trusts, upskilling them, helping them during crises, then increasingly working on the policy side, trying to get government and politicians to understand how to better intervene, working with the governing bodies and the leagues to try to get them to understand the need for better regulation, smarter regulation, fan involvement, fan engagement. And then eventually I set up on my own and fast forward to the last couple of years and now I've just published as Think Fan Engagement used to be Fan Insights, but changed the name. Think Fan Engagement just published the second Fan Engagement Index, which was for 2019-20. And in fact, I'm just in the process of putting together the data sets for the season that's just ending now, the 2020-2021 season. So that's where I am, and that's a swift introduction. So it's a, it's a great time to see the Fan Index published again. And what a lot of people won't know who are tuning into this is that we got together because of, of the crossover between my world of public consultation and community engagement and your world of, of fan engagement. And I think for people um, listening to this, listening to a lot of what you have to say, they'll, they'll see the, the exciting crossover b- between the two. So where did the idea of the Fan Index come from? The Fan Engagement Index, it's a combination of years of working with fans and clubs, trying to create those bridges between the two and eventually realising that they spoke the same language but a different dialect. And it's really hard. If you sit down someone who's got a thick Newcastle brogue with someone who's got a thick Cornish brogue, they'll understand enough to get along and there'll be plenty of things they can chat about, but there'll be lots of things that they miss right because of the because of some of the phraseology you use and some of the sort of the understandings of things and that's what really goes on in football that the language of fan and the language of club isn't always the same the dialect it was completely obvious to me eventually that after i tried to start the usual path of getting some consulting work with clubs because i have a skill set that is valuable and those clubs recognize that and i think anyone who looks at what i've done recognizes i've got a skill set that's valuable but because of the way that football is organized because of that gap in in dialect in language in understanding between the two it's not always easy to put someone like me somewhere in in a business like that to go okay 
this is where we would um, place your skill set. This is what you could do. These are the things that you could affect. The word, the term fan engagement was just frankly being misused and abused by people who, yeah, they were doing fan engagement, but it was the front end. It was the delivery of it. It was the tech. It was the apps. And they were being, frankly, a little bit dishonest about it because they were talking about as though an app or something like that could solve all their problems. We will find something out there, an app or a, or, an, or a particular tool, and it will say, this will solve your fan engagement problems. It won't because it's a tactical delivery thing. If you if you take a rusty old mini and you paint it in, in the most beautiful color, it's still a rusty old mini underneath. It doesn't change it. And if you take a tool and you plug that into a club that doesn't do fan engagement well enough or is struggling to navigate those relationships, all you're doing is plugging it into an organization that doesn't really use it in the right way or use it even to its fullest extent. So organizations that are trying to sell these apps and approaches and things will benefit from a properly structured strategy around fan engagement. The definition of it needed nailing down. Fan engagement is a subset of stakeholder engagement because that's what it is. It is a it's a subset of stakeholder engagement. And then secondly, I wanted to try to measure it and create the gold standard and show people what works. Because the other bit as well is that working as an activist for so long or being an activist and working with activists for a lot of the time, people saw it as a sort of worse bit of an obsession of a small group of people. And those small group of people in a, in some people's eyes would be oppositionalism, be lobbying from outside. It always felt a bit like it's external. And good organisations don't regard their key stakeholders, which let's be honest, football uses the term of stakeholder, terms like stakeholders all the time to describe fans. So if they're stakeholders, we need to start bringing them in on the conversation. They need to be much much more part of that. But obviously, we need to understand what those good clubs look like. What are they? Who? What characteristics do they have? What do they do? So in the end, the most sensible thing was to measure it and use the criteria that football itself has created. For example, the dialogue section. All those are things that footballers said should happen, really, pretty much all of them, either under the rules or as best practice. So every club should be having dialogue with their fans or fans' representatives. And these are the ways that they do it, which are the sorts of things that are measured in the index. So really, all the end, at the end of it is I'm simplifying it, I'm explaining it, and then I'm measuring I'm holding a mirror up to football and saying, this is what you look like. Do you like it? And if you don't, let's see if we can do, do it better. Yeah, and, and this year's results, uh, again, all over the press, I saw BBC News, quite a lot of uh, mm. coverage. Mm. It was clearly created a lot of interest and a lot of ex, um, excitement. What sort of things was it telling us this time around? The second year of anything like this starts to create a bit more of a picture, doesn't it? Because you've got no benchmark. You've got a benchmark, overall set of benchmarks, which creates a score. But in and of itself, on its own, one year doesn't tell you more than, than, than really is just a snapshot. So having a second year starts to show you whether you could start to say at least anecdotally it's having an effect, the index itself, whether there were perhaps problems. If you went through and started doing some really detailed data analysis, you could start understanding whether the hypothesis that clubs in financial trouble struggle with engagement to be honest with you i can tell you having worked in football for so long particularly at the sharp end at times that there is absolutely a direct relationship between crisis and the drawbridge coming up it's very common you look at swindon at the bottom second year in a row it doesn't take much to find out what's going on at swindon things are not very good at the moment it, it, it starts to build a picture and then you start to see for example clubs that are performing well like the Norwiches of this world who are just they're so damn consistent that's the really good thing about a club like that they're so consistent 
and their score might vary slightly. They might move a couple of places up or down in the table, but they're always on a pretty straight curve. They've got they're an excellent standard anyway, and they're just consistent. They deliver, and a lot of the clubs in the top 10 are like that. But then there's also, you'll start, you start to see a club like Everton suddenly appears because they start doing something slightly different, or part of it is as well is starting to find more information because this year I sent the data sets to clubs and said, look, I'm not asking you for data. I'm just asking you for comment. And if that includes data, that's great. What I want you to do is I'd like to engage with you on it because I think this is something that is valuable. So that's the other part is that this starts to become something the industry cares about. And not just I'm really embarrassed at being at this point in the table. or I'm really pleased at being at this point in the table. It's, it's, it's starting to create a much deeper understanding of how engagement works. Football isn't very good at sharing ideas. There are some in football who are really good at it. Just off the top of my head, Doncaster Rovers love Sean Lockwood there, the director of um, comms for the three clubs that are under the same banner, which is the Bells, Doncaster Rovers and, and Doncaster Rugby League. He's brilliant at sharing stuff. He'll put stuff, he'll always share things with other clubs. If it's a good idea, he'll put it out. But really, I'm afraid football's been quite bad at it. And there's too much of this sort of idea that if you share something good that you're doing, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage because they get a competitive advantage over you. So what you're doing is you're taking the idea of not giving away your tactical genius on the pitch and it's being applied across the club. When the tactical genius is something completely different from the running the business. And actually what we should all be doing is seeking to ensure all the businesses are run well. And that's the other part is what you start to see over time is a a, a sort of an understanding that engagement isn't just about communication. It's not just about pushing messages out. It's about how you integrate people into the football club as a sports business. And And this is the thing I'm not, I'm never shy about saying football is a sports business. Right. So just to dig a bit deeper on that, what do you mean by that? So for all sorts of reasons, it can be just looking at the wrong examples. For example, look, one of the things that tends to happen in football is that, and I, and I think it happens generally in business across, certainly in, in the UK, I think, is when people think of communications, they tend to think of marketing and often communications is placed under marketing. This is a tech, this sounds like a technical issue, but it isn't a technical issue. And bear with me and I'll explain why. That is because Marketing itself, a very important function of, of, of any business that, that, that wants to sell, trade, has users and all that kind of stuff. It is the language of selling and buying and segmenting. The thing about engagement and my sort of area of public relations in terms of relations with stakeholders, reputation of the company, all those sorts of things, is it's much more about your entire culture of doing business. It's much more about strategic management. And if what you're doing is layering on top of, let's be honest, they were pretty underdeveloped businesses anyway, football clubs in the 1980s and 1990s. And you're shoving these, this language and this, these areas of practice on top of businesses that are pretty immature anyway, then it can be a poor fit. So you end up having marketing speak. And this was often a lot of the problems, this whole thing about language and dialects, yeah? You'd have, you would have marketing speak and sales patter crowbarred into these institutions that were my granddad supported them that's why I'm a fan kind of places or this is where my granddad came this is where my dad came from or this is where my mum grew up or I spent all my life here I've lived my entire life here it means something to me and you can't you can't pack it's you can't easily just that isn't a sales those things are stories right they're memories those things are feelings 
they're visceral, they're, be- they're about belonging, they're all these things. That doesn't stop you selling and it shouldn't because a football club has to make, it has to create turnover, it has to sell things, it has to sell tickets, all these things. It has to function like a business, but it just needs to reach into that sort of deep, rich experience of fans and understand it far better. And I'm not talking about a focus group to decide whether or not you think this particular shirt is a good idea this year. I'm talking about, it's basically, think of being married to someone or cohabiting with someone or your civil partnership or whatever it is, your boyfriend or girlfriend or or whatever. And think of how a relationship there works, right? And you don't have a relationship with your other half or you're a good friend of yours. You don't have it by questionnaire. Do you? you don't send a questionnaire out every year to your best friend and go, do you like the way that I dress? A, yes, B, no. Relationships are complex to navigate, but they're even more complex if you structure them as sort of technical enterprises. And they're not. And it isn't about, I'm not a hippie, for goodness sake. I'm someone who absolutely agrees that football is a business. And actually, in, in many ways, I get I get a little tired of people saying the problem is, is football's run like a business and fans are regarded as customers. Are you seriously telling me, people, anyone who thinks that, are you seriously telling me that the problem is that fans have been treated like customers? I'd say the problem is his fans have not been treated like customers. <laughs> They've been treated as though that bit was, is just automatic and we'll always pay our money. And the problem is it's largely true, which means that's why the listening and the fan engagement matters so much because they are a very peculiar when I speak as one, it's not even, I couldn't even call it love. I can't call it like religion. It's something just, it makes no sense in so many, for so many reasons. It's so multi-layered. If you're going to run a business that, like a football club, you can run a football club, then understand it. And if you don't want to understand it, and you're going to get onto the Super League soon, but if you don't want to understand it, go and buy a shoe shop. Go and, go and set up a leisure enterprise that doesn't require that level of engagement with stakeholders. But don't run a football club if you can't get your head around it. But if you do want to get your head around it, all power to your elbow and I'll help you do that. And I get from that is that fan engagement has almost been placed over the top as a phrase and then it becomes technical and it, and loses the substance of what it should really mean in terms yeah. of dialogue and actually the word engagement and that, and that means a, a two-way relationship yes yes uh, the word dialogue gets thrown around in football so much because it became the thing because a lot there was a lack of sort of deep thought about this and proper thought about it and actually it's also partly because look football runs at a ridiculous pace it's really hard to nail this stuff down we don't all get to stop close season is not a period where football clubs stop and have a think it's a period where they're then preparing for next season you look at exeter today they're already pulling their pitch up and relaying it the transfer system was into action Everything is constantly happening. So the other bit I'd add to all of this is a lot of this, yes, there are choices by owners. I think owners need to take more responsibility in this area, need to understand that what, what they're buying, all that kind of stuff. But it is also, I, I wouldn't call it pity because that, that, that makes it sound a bit pathetic. But I know a lot of people running clubs all over the place and are just at all sorts of levels as well, not just senior people, not just junior, middle ranking people, whatever. Is I feel sorry for them. I, I feel their pain sometimes when the demands are on them then that's why it's hard to nail this stuff down and that is also why it can sometimes be very tempting to say that app will solve it brilliant let's buy the app 
And I also don't blame the people flogging the apps because they're trying to run a business. They're trying to turn a profit. They're trying to, there are some, there are, in my view, some quite irresponsible ideas out there. Yeah. And some people who should have a think about things around fan tokens being about good fan engagement is blatantly nonsense. And there are some schemes out there like that. And the idea that you can somehow monetize things like who has a right to have a say in the identity of my football club? Well, if you buy a token, then you get a vote. No, that's not, that's irresponsible. Yeah. in my view and it shouldn't be clubs should try to avoid that kind of stuff but in a lot of way a lot of places a lot of examples lots of they're all trying to do it everyone's trying to explore to find the answer so really in the end i hope what the index does is just help it's a bit of a say okay i, I can i now know what good looks like one of the things that i've created out of this which was created the last time but i've updated it this time is called the anatomy of an engaged club and it just, it's on our Twitter feed, Think Engagement on Twitter. It's on LinkedIn, Think Fun Engagement and all our social channels, Instagram and everything. And it just shows you the clubs through a sort of human body, shows you the clubs that are good at engaging in particular ways. And it's, it's not, this isn't easy stuff to navigate. Relationships aren't, are they? I'll put all those details in the blurb that goes when we put this podcast out. But just before we go on to the next subject, people want to know who was at the top and who was at the bottom of the, the fan wow. engagement index. It was a, I don't know if I can call um, Swindon West Country. I don't think they are really, but Swindon were, were unfortunately at the bottom for the second year running and Exeter were top. Exeter actually put on another 20, 20 25 points. So not only did they do, you know, win it the first year, by they did it again so in fact no I think they've just won it last year from AFC Wimbledon but yeah this year they've increased their lead by 20 odd points there's some great stories in there Bristol Rovers were were the biggest climbers both in points and places and the points are what matter over the places if I'm honest because you can move quite a lot in the table but really the key metric is the points and the consistency that you're doing it with every year like I said about Norwich and then lots of good stories in there. I've already mentioned Everton. I've been doing some work with them. We've got a case study ready to go to explain how they approach their their fan engagement. I've been speaking to some other clubs, but really at the heart of it is that there's the leadership and the culture and the good clubs are setting good culture through good leadership. And then, and then in some cases, there's some good technical, if you like, technical ways that the club is organised. Leicester will basically wall off engagement from marketing and sales they feed into marketing and sales because it's a fundamental part of understanding your customer fan but they recognize communications and engagement with fans as a fundamental good in itself yeah. right Everton do it slightly organized in a slightly different way but they do it too that's really a kind of fundamental characteristic is they recognize the importance of that relationship and the communication with the fan as a fundamental good of the business, not simply as a byproduct of needing to sell and buy things and needing to sell tickets or merchandise. It's just integrated into the way you think. And that's where success comes for most of those football clubs in the top 15, really, top 20, probably. Tranmere are another good yeah. one, actually. They deserve a bit of a shout out and the work that the Palioses have done. Also clubs like Grimsby, who one of the really impressive things I find, one of the things that's sort of most pleasing for me is that even where clubs are not doing well on the pitch and evidently Grimsby are not, they got relegated to the National League Premier because of it's been a difficult time for them, difficult time for a lot of clubs. And they've gone through a change of ownership is they've retained the structure. Carlisle did that. They retained this structure. They retained the relationship with the Supporters Trust who have a, some ownership, they have a director by right through these, this thing called a shareholders agreement. 
And it's meant that then when they start to try to come out of the, the difficult times, they've still got that structure there. Swansea had terrible problems between the supporters' trust and the majority owners. Those things underpinning those relationships, the agreements, the shares, the directors, they all stayed. And it meant they could get through that short-term crisis. Whereas what often happens is, and where clubs sometimes fall down the table, is a new owner comes in or a new chief executive or whatever and just wholesale changes it all. And they go, we don't need that anymore. And you say, you do, because whoever the owner is, you still need these relationships. And these are the groups who represent those relationships in this club. So that's a sort of very rough tour of some of the trends in the index. That's amazing. I mean, they keep trying to jump in to interpret what you're saying to my day-to-day world, which is public consultation, community engagement, local government, NHS, planning, that sort of thing. And and I'm not going to do it because I think people listening to this will, will see the crossover the things that go well, the leadership, the culture, it speaks for itself. So that's fantastic. Matt, changing tack now, the European Super League. Yeah. When it first (laughs) happened, it'd be great to just get your take on that. What went wrong? Was there any fan engagement, any kind of consultation? No. It was an absolute, in the latest fan engagement pod, maybe unfairly, the episode is titled The Super League Clown Car. And it really was. It was like went about two metres down the road and then it exploded and the lights came off and these people came tumbling out. This was talked about all the time. My old boss for a period, Dave Boyle, used to say, yeah, they all keep they always talk about the Super League, but they never actually create a roadmap to it. And this wasn't a roadmap. This was the destination and saying we're going to get there because we are. And everyone just went, no, you're not. And the reason they said you're not is because this is a fundamental driving a coach and horses through the fundamental structure of European football. South America sees it in a similar way. I think there's old footballing continents, as it were. And uh, you're meant to get there by merit. And you can argue about whether or not the Champions League needs to be reformed in this way or that. And I think there are some fundamental questions there. And Ronan Evan from the FSC talks with me and Tim Crow, former sports marketing, well, he's a sports marketing guru as far as I'm concerned, in that podcast episode. And they're going to have to really work hard to make UEFA listen to, to some of the changes that are required and ensuring that we still have this merit-driven pyramid in Europe at all levels. But the reason that was seen off, you almost completely across the board went, you must be joking, apart from the, the six was because it it was so obviously just, it was wrong. (laughs) Did they do an engagement? No, because what it does is highlights a fundamental fault with fan engagement in football. And I'd say it's probably, you can read it across to other sports, I think. But let's talk about football is that, and I I think it's about power in all sorts of areas in British business and in between government and citizens or subjects, we're not citizens, is that there are some things that they believe are entirely reserved for the owners or, or operators of the business. And that's correct at some level. But the problem is they don't think expansively enough about where the voice of fan can help you to make better decisions. And so you end up with these people talking to themselves or they're basically in a small group of people. There's a small group of sort of high level operators and they all think they understand it. And undoubtedly, they're not stupid people. I think it's a, it's a complete nonsense to call them stupid because there's some very bright people there. But there's a bit of desperation. It's no no coincidence that many of those clubs involved were, were some of the most indebted. You look at Real Madrid and Barcelona. It's a mess in terms of the finance, a really bad situation. And then they were backfilling with these arguments about the pyramid and how we're helping football. What you need to do is, if you want to make fundamental changes to your club or to its position in the pyramid or to European football, you need to converse with fans about it and understand that they are a fundamental part, and also players as well, because players aren't very keen. But then the whole thinking behind it was not about 
improving football. It was ultimately about words like power and guaranteeing income. I think someone's written in The Athletic recently that this was about reducing the risk in, in the pyramid. And they're doing that through the UEFA route and the Champions League, etc. But anyone with strategic communications now would have said to them, you can probably manage the crises. You can probably make this less, it might collapse more slowly and less chaotically. But a good PR or a good communications advisor would have said to them, we can't make this a better idea. It's a terrible idea. But if you want to communicate it, we can help you communicate it. But we don't think it's going to succeed. But I doubt you know, that they would have had people telling them that because then it would have been counter to their entire instinct that the idea was what they wanted as as, as either owners or in the case of the Barcelona, Florentino Perez, the elected head. <laughs> he is the elected head of a football club. He is not the owner of Real Madrid, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Did, uh, did any of the six involved even try to claim that there'd been any sort of... Over here? No, there was talk of things like, I believe that... Edward Wood, the chief executive of Man United, had said that when asked about this, he said something like, we'll keep the fans in our thoughts. That's quite a vanilla answer, isn't it, really? That's not telling you very much. And I think similar things were said in a couple of other situations. And they all the thing is, they all had ways of asking. If they needed to ask, they could have asked because five of those clubs, except for Spurs, have fans' parliaments, which are drawn from the fan base and fan activists. And the Spurs Trust, the Tottenham Hotspur Sports Trust, was meeting regularly, minimum of three times a year with the Spurs Trust board. There isn't really any excuse. I think they've learned something from it. I certainly hope they have. But the other thing as well is this fan-led review, which is now sort of homing into view, which is really occupying people. And it's part of the reason the index has got a lot of, there's a lot more noise around it, is that there are some people rather saying, what we need is fan ownership. Dare I point out that Barcelona and Real Madrid are both fan-owned. It's not about a model. The model, evidently, look at Exeter. Yeah, the model is a really good one. And and I've always been honest and said, as a Wimbledon fan as well, and a beneficiary, I think fan ownership is a superior model. However, in the environment we're in, you can't just click your fingers and turn them all fan-owned. Even if you forced every club to be fan-owned, that doesn't create the culture. You then got all of the problems that you get around you know, such a massive regulatory intervention. The thing you need to do is to create saner regulation around the behaviour of clubs, incentivise better behaviour, make them have to meet, make it a, a mandatory part of what you have to do to have engagement with your independent supporters trust, your supporters trust, for example. Make it mandatory that you have to publish financial information. I mean, Brighton is such a good example of this. You look at them at the index and and there are technical reasons why they don't appear really high in the table. And that's partly to do with sometimes finding information because it's about desk research and finding where information is. And you can't always find it, even though I'm a very persistent researcher. It's not always possible. But what they're really good at is that they quietly get on with being open and transparent. And I think you could take what Brighton do and you could say every club has to publish their financial information openly and prominently every year you could say every club has to have a support liaison officer which is independent from any other role in the football club you could say every single relationship between a supporters trust uh, and the board of the football club has to be underpinned by a legal agreement or a memorandum of understanding for example that 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 ensures that both sides understand their rights and responsibilities because fans have to have responsibilities too as well as rights Mm -hmm. so you could work these things through 
and and then you can start to shape a game that's more responsive and engaging and clubs that are better run and make better decisions. But this idea there's a solution called fan ownership is just the biggest load of nonsense, I have to be honest. It just and as I said, I'm an advocate, but don't drop it in the middle of the situation we've got because what you'll end up with is not Germany, you'll end up with Spain in the early nineties where all bar four of the clubs got privatized and got sold off to private ownership because the government wasn't going to prop them up anymore. What's the point in setting up people for failure? Make the boats rise for everyone. Make everyone's boat rise. Improve the way we all operate and behave and the culture around it and the support to to help clubs to do this well, rather than forcing everyone to to sell off 51% of their club. Just on the European Super League decision, would do you think it would have been any better if they'd have started the conversation early? So we're off in, in the world of working with, in government and local authorities and think and with planning it's, it's a general sort of concept that start the engagement early no nasty surprises and then you work your way towards some kind of consultation and a decision do you think if they if the six had started an, like a process of early engagement a year ago in the build-up to the announcement would that have helped or would it or would it have just been if it's a bad idea it's a bad idea if you want to build a you know a tower block outside i live on the edge of the country you can't build a tower block in the middle of a field don't pursue bad ideas don't pursue ideas that are evidently yeah that are evidently against the pyramid and the whole point of merit driven results and all that kind of stuff if they'd gone Um, to the bank's parliament one of those clubs and said yeah, they would have been told where to go. That's the honest truth is they would have been told where to go. That was the whole point of all of this is this wasn't about creating a process by which you come to a decision about a strategic business objective. This was about doing something that a small group of people felt was the right thing for their businesses. And that's OK, because you have to make those decisions as a business leader. It's important. You can't just go to your customers, your users, your stakeholders, your fans on every single decision. This is the point of engagement. It's about a culture and a, and a process of conversation and listening. It's not about, but they were never going to ask. They were going to ask. It was not really what it was about. So, Just yeah. um, changing a little bit of direction. You, I, I've done something that's no good for a podcast, but can you see a ladder in front of you? I can indeed, yeah. Right. Now that is Arnstein's ladder of participation. Yeah. And I was going to, because I've got you, I was going to yeah. ask where you think fan engagement sits in that Right. Ladder. I think, so the bottom is manipulation. Is that right? Yeah. Therapy, and those are non-participation. And then you've got informing, consultation, publication, that is tokenism. And then you've got partnership, delegated power, and citizen control, which is... So citizen power. It depends on which club you're talking about. A fan engagement, though, should really be, in truth, it should really be in the top three. It should really be under citizen power. But that will scare some people because then they'll, some people will think, so that means you want to you want to force me to sell 51% of my club. At the top level, there are clubs that are owned in that way. But I think really it should be the top three i think any business that's running itself that has to because of its environment where it's placed or what it does unless you really are just a corner shop selling stuff selling newspapers and whatever and even then you have to listen to your customers properly and you're not but you're not going to have particularly strong stakeholder relationships so much i think most businesses will benefit from the citizen power approach yeah it's just it's what people are beginning to expect so this myth that perez had that kids don't care about gen z don't care about football and they're not interested and they're just a bunch of 
brainless consumers staring at screens is the biggest load of nonsense going. If you understand how that generation works, things bleed into different generations. The kids around now, lots of them have real values about stuff. They want their organizations to be responsive. They want things like, look at who was demonstrating out there when when all this, this was kicking off in the Super League. It was young people, not young blokes, but people who were much younger. So citizen yeah the top three it's in the end i think a lot of certainly a football club even if it's not got anything owned by the fans in any meaningful way i think they would benefit from looking at from it being about partnership delegated power and citizen control i don't think that all three of those are functioning every need need to function at every single club but i think if you're in that top three and you're moving around either in one of those or between them then i think you're doing it right That's fantastic. I'm going to ask you one more question if I can. Yeah, go ahead. The the this, the European Super League, all the fuss about it, is it a tipping point for fan engagement? Or in 12 months' time, is it all going to be forgotten? No, I get, I think things like tipping points and such like are a bit tiresome because I think this is all kind of process towards a different outcome to, to the last. I think there's some incredibly talented and clever people, the rights holders in the leagues and the governing bodies, when it comes to preventing uh, too much change that doesn't suit the leagues or whatever the clubs. I think it's much, much more difficult for those people to withstand the absolutely phenomenal pressure that's now there. But then that also depends on what the progressives do because it's not just the fans there are progressive people in football clubs who think a lot of this as well this idea that clubs are all over here and fans are all over here is nonsense not true and they might not always be able to speak out at that particular moment but i know that i know the ones who are progressive and i know a lot of them are scared of speaking out it, it's a really hard balance to strike it's a really hard thing to do and they're or they're not scared they're tentative about it and they're sort of okay what's this going to mean for me because we are balancing interests and stuff. And it's important. This isn't a takeover. This isn't about forcing these people out and bringing these people in. It's about striking a far better balance between the decisions of owners and operators of football clubs and the people who you rely on in order to run the business, being players, fans, that kind of thing. It does matter an awful lot what the response is. And if it's organised, and there are groups like Fair Game out there that I'm certainly advising them a little bit on, on, on the fan engagement side of it and the cultural side of it, who are a collection of clubs and fans and organized fan groups and things like that and experts trying to present ideas about how you take this all forward that is going to matter almost as much as what the willingness is to legislate or force leap football to do something about it on the part of government or the report itself it's going to matter a lot i'm optimistic that we won't end up with another of the same old outcomes which was that Every single time there's been a review since, and including 1999, the actual change that's required, although the Football Task Force was brilliant because it created supporters direct, and actually that generation of activists you saw over the European Super League, that's our legacy. My organisation doesn't exist anymore. That's one of our legacies is organised fandom and, and younger people being engaged with this. But if the ideas are there, if, that, if those things can coalesce, um, then there's an opportunity in the end, as I said, there were some incredibly bright and clever people who are very good at withstanding the pressure for change in football. So it depends on how those dynamics works and it depends on what the coalition of progressives is and whether or not they put forward ideas. People like Tracy Crouch, who's leading the review, whether she's going to recognise that, 
yeah, th these are the changes we need. But it's a process. This is a whole process. There aren't moments where everything changes. There are moments where you think, ah, okay, there's an opportunity here. So let's see what happens with that. Fantastic. Yeah, I think there is an opportunity. It's been fantastic having you on the podcast today to talk about this and, and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure people are going to get so much insight whatever where, wherever they hang around in the world of engagement stakeholder engagement i think they're going to get a lot of insight um, and inspiration from some of your thoughts kevin so good thank i'm you glad so it's been good to be on again thank you and until the next time yeah until the next time thank you for tuning in to the uk consult Join us for future conversations each week as we continue to explore the tremendous, meaningful and ever-evolving world of digital consultation and community engagement. You can view additional educational resources at bangthetable.com.